0: I'll invite you to open your Bibles, please, to the book of Philippians, chapter 2. Let's pray together. Father, thank you. Thank you that you bless us continuously with so many, many gifts, but we, we rejoice in your gift of a Savior who is Christ the Lord. We pray that you'd help us this morning to worship you well, to yield our hearts to you, to see what you've said. To know our Savior and to expect him. In Jesus' name. Amen. Nativity scenes, candlelight services, family gatherings, festive lights, and music, food, family, fun, gifts. Many things come to our minds when we consider the celebration of. Christmas. For most of us, it is a celebration of the birth of Jesus. It is about the celebration of God condescending to take on human flesh. And it's okay to give gifts. Whenever we celebrate anything, we give gifts. Whenever we celebrate anything, we eat food. Whenever we celebrate anything, we gather together with family and friends and those dear to us. These are all fine things because we're celebrating something, and more particularly someone. A celebration of the birth of Jesus Christ must be done in light of his sacrificial death and glorious resurrection on behalf of God's people. A celebration of the birth of Jesus Christ must be done in light of the sacrificial death and glorious resurrection For the redemption of God's people. And so our text this morning, for the few minutes that we are together, is Philippians chapter 2, beginning in verse 5 and heading all the way down to verse 11. We've read it once this morning responsively. now we'll read it, Uh, I'll read it, and you can follow along in your copy of the scriptures. Beginning in verse 5, let this mind, or having this mind among yourselves, which is God the Father. So this morning we want to note four essential truths concerning the birth of Jesus. The first is this Jesus, and I use that term because that's we're talking about Jesus, but really to be better stated, to be the the second person of the Trinity or the eternal Son of God, would be a better way to phrase this point, but for the sake of consistency, Jesus emptied himself to become man. Jesus emptied himself to become man. Verses 5 through 7, we read it, but we'll read it again. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself. But emptied himself. He emptied himself. What does this mean? Did he cease to be God? The text itself answers that question, at least in summary form. He did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. The text tells us he was equal with God. He is God himself. It says he didn't count it something to be grasped. It's like you're going through a crowd of people, and you know that there might be pickpockets in the crowd, and so you put your... Wallet in your pocket, and maybe you put your hand on your wallet, just making sure that everything's going to be fine. I want my wallet. I don't want you to have my wallet. It's something I'm going to grasp onto. It's something I count worthy of being grasped. But Jesus basically would walk through the crowd in this ridiculous illustration with his hands out of his pockets and say, "If you want it, you know. If you don't want to see me as who I am, I'm not going to cling on to this need." for you to know who I really am as the second person of the Trinity, the eternal son of God. He didn't count it so important to him that he was needing people to know he in fact was God in the flesh. He was veiled. He was willing to be veiled in the flesh. Jesus and the writers of the New Testament make it clear that Jesus is God. You'll remember the claim of Jesus in John chapter 10 and verse 30. I and the Father are one. We're one. The author of Hebrews wrote, he is, Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God. God being the sun, the radiance being the rays. You don't have rays unless you're part of the sun. The sun does not exist unless it gives off rays. They are one and the same. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint, replica of his nature. So the baby born in the manger was not only a cute little baby, but God in the flesh. But it says here he emptied himself. In what way did he empty himself? William Hendrickson, one commentator, shared several reasons or several ways in which Jesus emptied himself. I want to just capture three of them briefly. First of all, he gave up his riches. He gave up his riches. Now, we we sang about this this morning, some of us. A group of us that were on the stage here sang about this. Thou who wast rich beyond all splendor, all for love's sake became poor. We know the text of Scripture in 2 Corinthians chapter 8 and verse 9 that says this: For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. Jesus gave himself, He, he gave up the glory and riches of heaven. He writes this under that discussion. This is William Hendrickson's words, not mine. He gave up everything, even himself, his very life. So poor was he that he was constantly borrowing a place for his birth, a house to sleep in, a boat to preach from, an animal to ride on, a room in which to institute the Lord's Supper, and finally a tomb to be buried in. Moreover... He took upon himself a debt, a very heavy debt. His debt, voluntarily assumed, was the heaviest that was ever incurred by anyone. One so deep in debt is surely poor. Jesus gave up the riches of heaven and took upon him the the (coughs) indebtedness for our sin. The one who created every Adam had to borrow from those whom he created with the breath of his own mouth. This is incredible. God becomes man and he empties himself of his riches. Secondly, he gave up his heavenly glory. Now, there were glimpses of Jesus' glory throughout his ministry, you'll remember. Different ways in which he manifested his glory through powerful preaching, right? through the, the power of raising people from the dead, right? We see his glory there. You see him healing people that had diseases and inabilities. We see a, a bit of his glory. And and three individuals saw just a glimpse of Jesus glory on the Mount of Transfiguration. You'll remember he was shining so brightly that that they couldn't even believe it. His, his raiment was so white that no launderer on earth could have laundered it that well. It's incredible. There's a there's a transformation in front of their eyes, but just a small little glimpse of Jesus glory. Jesus prayed in his high priestly prayer, and now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory I had with you before the world existed. And so Jesus' glory was veiled. He emptied himself of glory. And thirdly, how we understand this concept of Jesus emptying himself, and this, I think, is the most specific way that it really communicates this, he gave up his independent exercise of authority He gave up his independent exercise of authority. Remember, he created everything. He's the one who ultimately is the fulfillment of and to whom the promises were made. He is the Lord of heaven, the Lord of glory. And yet he came and he subjected himself to his mom and his dad and Caesar and natural law most of the time, he was tempted by Satan to overcome natural law for his own benefit. Do you remember? Forty days without food in the wilderness, Satan comes, command these stones to become bread so you can have something to eat because you're really hungry, don't you know that? No. And yet, later in his ministry, you'll remember, there was a multitude gathered to hear him preaching 6,000, 8,000, 10,000, it says 5,000. We know that there were women and children, so some 10,000, 12,000 people, maybe more. He preaches to them, even though they were supposed to be having a vacation. You remember that. And he sees that they're hungry. And so he broke natural law for their hunger because they needed it lest they be weary on the return journey, is what he said to his disciples. That is incredible. He can overcome natural law, but only in fulfillment of God's directive plan. And so we see this text in John 5 and verse 30. I can do nothing on my own. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just, because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. The Son of God willingly limited the free exercise of his divine nature when he was born as Jesus. We see him performing acts consistent with his divine nature, but only in submission to the Father's direct will. Jesus emptied himself. Did he have a right to do anything he wanted? Yes and no he willingly submitted himself to the Father. And so, no, he didn't have a right to do whatever he wanted, which is why when he was at the point of the sacrifice of his life and the bearing of sin and the separation from the Father, you'll remember as he prayed in the garden, Father, is there another way? Let let this cup be taken from me. Give me some other way. Nevertheless, not my will. Oh, wait a second, what do you mean? Was your, is your will in contradiction to the Father's? Well, for another way. But he didn't submit himself to his own will. Nevertheless, not my will. But thine be done. This is, this is a, a sample, folks, of Jesus emptying himself, saying, I will become a man bound by natural law, bound by the constraints of having a supreme over him. He surrendered himself. Jesus emptied himself. Secondly, in our overall understanding of Philippians 2, Jesus subjected himself to the commonness of everyday life. Think about this. He he was taking the form of a servant. Now, does God need to eat? Does he? Was God in heaven, like before he ever created the world, saying, well, man, I've got to get something? I guess I'll make the earth so I'll have some fruit. God has never hungered. He's not hungry. Jesus became man, and he hungered. And he experienced thirst. Does God ever get tired? No, he's God. But Jesus became weary. Does God sweat? No. But Jesus sweat. Jesus needed to clean himself. In every way you can imagine, just like we do. The God who spoke the world into existence had to clean himself for me. He sweat. He experienced rejection and sorrow. Does God sorrow? He communicates to us as if he sorrows, so we understand his care for us, but God isn't, he's not sitting up in heaven with tears in his eyes. Oh man, I can't believe that's going to happen. If that's the way you think about God, you don't know who he is. He knows the end from the beginning. He doesn't never surprised by anything. He's not weak, but Jesus sorrowed and he experienced pain. We gather and we sing Christmas carols and we picture a cute little baby. God experienced what it was like to be cold and hot and hungry. He experienced what it was like to be struck in the face. Does God ever feel pain? He doesn't have a body. God is spirit. But Jesus took on flesh. And folks, you better believe it. When he was punched in the face, it hurt. He experienced thorns forcefully driven into his skin. And he experienced what it was like to have nails piercing his wrists and his feet the commonness of life we get a paper cut and we say ow Jesus is pierced he said ow or maybe he didn't say it out loud well you know he felt pain maybe you can man up so that other people don't know you're hurting but you know when you're hurting he was hurting he was human in every sense of the term Jesus subjected himself to the commonness of earthly life thirdly Jesus endured the shame and grief and pain and penalty of sin. Shame, grief, pain, and penalty. Verse 4, in being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. We recognize what this cross death is crucifixion we don't need to go through all the details we know what it is that's just the physical side of it and the physical side is pretty staggeringly and chillingly grievous easy for me to say right well that's the easy part but I believe that as you understand the scriptures and you understand the nature of Jesus, that was the easier part. It doesn't mean it was easy. It was horrific, but easier than the spiritual side of it. It says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 21, For our sake God made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. You'll remember Jesus on the cross. He said seven things, right? We're familiar with this. Seven different statements. Some of them were compassionate Behold your mother, behold your son. Remember that. It's compassion. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Compassion. This day you'll be with me in paradise. Compassion. I thirst. Pain. Into Thy hands I commit my spirit. Before that, it is finished. You know which one I'm, I'm headed at right now, right? It's the one that stands out. All of them stand up. Out. Stands out. Jesus said, "My God, my God, why have you forsaken me?" This he did. He he allowed himself, he placed himself in a position to be forsaken so I would never have to be forsaken. This, This is the glory of Jesus Christ. But he took on the grief and shame of my sin. This is another part of that theology that is so important to us. God is not just a cosmic teddy bear who in heaven says, oh, I, I forgive everybody all the time for everything. It's like this is what some, like, we, we've gone from God being this austere ogre in the sky in some, some areas, and then over here, he's just this, this jolly old soul that just wants to forgive anyone no matter what they do without any thought. Neither of these visions of God are, are correct. God is holy and righteous. So God is different He's separate from, and he's righteous, meaning he does what's right. And he also is just, which means he requires what's right. So in order for God to look upon me, this rotten sinner, that's what I am. I'm sinful. In order for God to look upon me and save me and forgive my sin, he doesn't just say, I'm loving, I will forgive you. All of God's attributes must be satisfied at the same time. So in order for God's love and compassion and mercy and grace to be poured out on me, a just payment needed to be made. That just payment was made. God is faithful and just to forgive us of our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. How is he just to do so? He placed my sin upon Jesus, even though he knew no sin, so that I might become the righteousness of God. Through Him. And so God in His justice poured out His wrath, the wrath for my sin on Jesus. It, it, it was a shameful thing for Jesus to be bloodied and naked hanging on a cross. Even after the fact, in 1 Corinthians 1:23, 1. we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to the Gentiles. Think about what that's saying. This is your Lord, cursed, we'll talk about that in a second, under the thumb of the Roman government, crucified. You don't crucify Roman citizens, it's, it's for the, the really disgusting people. But this is what happened to your Lord and your Savior. It's a stumbling block to Jews and it's foolishness to the Greeks. The Bible says in Galatians 3.13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. The reason they're hanged on a tree is because they're cursed. Jesus was hung on a tree because he was cursed. How? Why was he cursed? Because he became sin for me. The shame and the guilt and the pain and the penalty for my sin on Christ on the cross. Jesus bore that. That's what this text is telling us. He became obedient to the point of death. Even to death. Even to the cross death. The crucifixion death. The one that, that led to the forgiveness of my sin. Jesus. Which leads us to... Even better news. So it's, it's great news that Jesus uh, willingly surrendered himself really to the Father's will. He gave up the free exercise of that. Jesus faced the commonness of everyday life, yes. Jesus took the penalty and pain for my sin on himself. This is good. This is, this is grace. As we come to the end of this text in verses 9 through 11, we see the glorious result. Jesus has been exalted to the highest place. <laughs> Jesus has been exalted to the highest place. Now, when you celebrate the birth of Jesus, you're not just celebrating a baby wrapped in swaddling clothes lying in a manger. You're you're celebrating something far greater. One who grew up. He grew in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and man. He, he obeyed the law. He fulfilled the Father's plan. He took the sin of the world upon himself. He, he was a, a wrath-removing sacrifice. We, we know all of this. He was buried. And the third day he rose again, triumphant over sin, Satan, and, and death. And then he was Exalted. Look at what it says beginning in verse 9. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Jesus has an exalted position. He's at the right hand of the Father. The Bible tells us in Hebrews 12, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. He's far above all principality, rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that's named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And the Bible says, And to which of the angels has he ever said, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool? Jesus has been exalted to this highest position. There is no name above his name. He is, folks, the King of kings and Lord of lords. It says he has received an exalted name. Is it Jesus? Is it Lord? Well, Jesus is his human name, and so we we exalt that name. But the name that is above every name probably is the term Lord, kurios. It's the New Testament expression of the Hebrew expression, which we we would maybe say Yahweh. Yahweh. What what is Yahweh? Well, it's. if you want a, a really technical term, I love this. It's the ineffable tetragrammaton. It's the unspeakable four-letter word. This is the name of God. Jesus has received the name that is above every name. Why? Why? That at the name of Jesus, every knee would bow. Who? Every knee. In heaven, on earth, under the earth. What is he talking about? Every soul will bow. Every tongue will confess Jesus Christ is Kurios or Adonai Master. Jesus is the Master. The Bible portrays and we look forward to this day when Jesus comes back. This God we're speaking about came as a baby. He gave up his riches and his glory and the free exercise of his divine authority. He experienced the commonness of earthly life. He became a sin sacrifice for us. And he has returned to heaven as the triumphant Lord. And he is coming again. The next time he comes... He's not hiding anything. He's not hiding his exalted position. The next time he comes, he will not be holding back the free exercise of his authority. When he comes back, he will not come back as a pauper. He will come back as the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. I suggest, folks, when you celebrate the babe. In a manger, you also celebrate the returning king. He is coming. You see, Christmas is about God being veiled in flesh, tabernacling among us. We beheld His glory, the glories of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. It's, it's about Him fulfilling the Father's plan. Christmas is about God condescending and becoming poor. And God condescending and bearing our iniquity and our sin and the condemnation for our sin. And dying and ultimately rising again and triumphing over heaven and earth and everything in it and coming back as the king of kings. It's about all of this. It's not just about a baby. It's about who God is and what he has done. You have no Christmas. You have nothing. No babe in a a manger as the starting point. You have no exalted king that is triumphant over heaven and earth after his ascension from the, the earth and his finished work on the cross. You don't have any of that. Christmas, the celebration, is the starting point of everything we stand for. To say that the virgin birth is not a cardinal doctrine is heresy, no matter whose name is stapled to that ridiculous statement. If you ever see someone tell you that the virgin birth is not essential to the faith, you can stop listening to that person, and you can burn all of their material, What we're gathered here, the reason we're gathered on Christmas Day is because this king, he's worth worshiping today and tomorrow and the next day. My question for you, have you already bowed the knee? Have you already confessed the tongue? Have you already said Jesus Christ is Lord? Have you already recognized that there is no other name given among men whereby we must be saved do you realize that He is the way, the truth, and the life, and that no man comes into the Father except by Him? Do you realize that Jesus didn't come into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through Him might have life? Trust Christ. Recognize He is both Savior and Lord. You too, you too will have your sin removed. You too will have a reason to expect this return of a coming king of kings. And you'll look to it with great passion and anticipation, not with fear or dread. I can't wait for Jesus to come back. Not because, hey, look, uh, I'm really spiritual now so he can come back. Good luck with that one. You're not going to feel spiritual at any point and say, I really think he should come back now because I'm wicked spiritual now. No, it's because it's all about him. History. Life, the scriptures, are about the babe born in Bethlehem. The man that was God, crucified on Calvary, raised, ascended, and returning. Is he your savior? Is he your Lord? If so, we have a story to tell to the nations. They need to hear. If not today is the day. Trust Christ. May this Christmas be the greatest Christmas ever as you recognize who he really is. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your goodness. Thank you for the gift of our Savior. In Jesus' name, amen.